episode two, Los Altos Institute's 13-episode course, Latin America, Laboratory of Capitalism. I'm Stuart Parker. I'm the instructor. This is a recording of our 13-episode online course. Uh, we hope you enjoy this as a uh, tool for uh, education and provocation. When... Um... When we, we think, so you got to think a little bit more about the Republican Party. Um, obviously, uh, so to under, it used to be that America was liberalism incarnate. It was the first liberal revolution in the world. And in every federal presidential election in America from 1789 to 1972, the presidential candidates for both political parties identified themselves as the liberal candidate. Liberalism, it seems inconceivable 50 years later, that liberalism was the hegemonic ideology of America and the official ideology of all major political parties. This does not just include um, uh, this was the official ideology of the Democratic Party, the official ideology of the Whigs, the official ideology of the Know Nothing Party. Uh, every major political intervention, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's Progressive Party in 1924, these were all liberal parties. And most new parties that have come, uh, that came onto the scene in America before the Carter uh, Ford election. Um, were parties that stated that they had come onto the political scene because the other two parties had ceased to be liberal and it was necessary for a new liberal party. So it gives you, and that's, and of course the, the rest of the world saw America as liberalism, but of course the definition of liberalism then came to be somewhat contingent on the national politics of America. Now, Original, uh, there's a Jeffersonian liberalism that um, is decentralist um, and interested in the rights of small collectives and subcollectives. And there is a Lincoln liberalism, a Republican liberalism um, that's, that uh, is not interested in those things. It is interested in free persons and free markets. And its opinion on local democratic governance, local democratic decision-making is very much teleological. If a, local, if a local power is making liberal, i.e. individualistic decisions, it's good. And if it's not, then a power above it should intercede and make sure that liberal outcomes take place because the measure of liberalism is not the stated intention of political parties, it's the ability of individuals and corporations to act in this free market. Now, to put that, the coalition that was the Republican Party, it was a tough thing to assemble. It involved uh, putting together uh, a variety of different interests. And the Republican Party has always stood on essentially a three-legged stool. One leg of the stool 
are paranoid maize farmers. Uh, America, uh, baked into the essence of America, is the idea that if you own your own land and you grow maize, you will make money. And if that doesn't happen, there's only one possible reason. There is a conspiracy working against you. Uh, this has been a strong political, this is the core of American populism, right? I'm selling this maize, I'm losing money. Somebody has to be to blame because I'm a hardworking person and I own my own land. Now, who the, uh, oh, very good. Uh, Three-legged stool is a milking stool that I'm gonna use. I'm gonna start referring to the Republicans as America's milking stool. This is gonna be quite helpful. So um, the, uh, so this three-legged stool then, uh, one leg is the paranoid maize farmer. Um, now, maize farmers originally, uh, paranoid maize farmers became an important political constituency. Hi, Laura. Hello, in, uh, the, um, in the 1850s, uh, you, this comes to be manifest, um, uh, pardon me, in the, uh, in the 1850s, when the Republican Party is forming, this is a volatile, angry political constituency. And what they believe is that the reason their farms aren't making money in the North is because of something called slave power. It is the way that farmers in the South are given an unfair advantage by being allowed to, by having a slavery-based agricultural system underwritten by the Federal Marshals Department who enforced the Fugitive Slave Law. You can see special laws are being made for these big latifundia style plantations down there in Virginia and Alabama. And um, these servile uh, persons are, you know, non-persons are working for them and the federal government's footing the bill for slavery and making unfair laws for slavery. And so uh, maize farmers in the American Midwest who are financially marginal, um, especially as America extends west into Kansas into a drier and drier, less fertile climate. Um, yeah, the, as, as America extends west out of the uh, Midwest into the Great Plains, there are more and more corn farmers losing money and more. And there's a greater consensus that there is some evil force conspiring against them. And the Republican Party is the is really after Andrew Jackson's Democrats, when Andrew Jackson takes over the Democratic Party in the 1820s, that's probably the first example of this group being mobilized. But at that time, they're a small, smaller part of the coalition. When this crew leaves the Democrats for the Republicans, uh, this is a lot of states in the Electoral College. This is Illinois, this is Kansas, this is Nebraska. And as this consensus grows, it's stoked by other parts of the Republican coalition. Now the people, this maize farmer uh, paranoid group um, is, um, they had had their own political party in 1848. They had run Martin Van Buren, the former president 
um, for, uh, for election um, on the free soil platform. Free soil is an ideology which is pro-Western expansion, anti-slavery, believes in free markets, free people, and um, ideally the repatriation of the slaves to Africa. Free soilers tend to believe um, that black people are subhuman and that because they are not fully endowed with free will, that's one of the unfair advantages of these Southern planters. Now, the next pillar um, are people like John Brown. And again, they're a permanent part, a big part of the Republican party. People who hear voices and believe that those voices are God. Um, people who are members of ecstatic religious movements um, that believe that God is personally intervening in their lives every day and who believe that they are in direct unmediated communication with God. Now, the thing is, this group has always been, it's not, it's the smallest of the three legs of the stool. It, abolitionists were only 8% of voters um, uh, but the thing is that back in the 1850s, God was telling people much better things. Um, the voice of God told John Brown to free slaves and kill slavers. Uh, the voice of God was very concerned about slavery in the 1850s. And most of the base, which called itself evangelical, I want to be very clear, these people were called the evangelicals then, and they're very much like the evangelicals today. Rural, anti-intellectual. But the big difference is what God is saying to them. Um, 150 years ago, God was telling them that slavery was a sin, that the slaves had to be freed, and that Black people were their equals. And I, I think we all know that the the average message evangelicals receive from God today, Republican Party activist evangelicals, is sure shit, not that. Uh, the um, uh, we'll take this a look. Uh, so the um, so that's and and but those highly religious people were very important, right? Like the evangelicals in the Republican base today. They contributed the most volunteer hours. They were the most enthusiastic activists. Um, and so they were accepted in the coalition. But I want to be clear that whereas the evangelicals, the abolitionists, tended to believe, have the most radically, um, had the, the strongest belief that Black people were their equals, they were in a coalition with free soilers who believe that black people were absolutely not fully human. Uh, and that the reason we should get rid of slavery is A, because it's rigging the economy for the bad guys, and B, because slavery sullies us as white people by, by having us treat these subhuman individuals in this disgusting way. So, um, and this is, uh, you know, today we think of free soilers and abolitionists as essentially the same group. 
but they're actually people who had diametrically opposed views. Those diametrically opposed views led them to similar conclusions though. Um, both groups believed that you didn't need discriminatory laws that uh, relegated black people to a second class situation. Abolitionists believed that because they believed that black people were their equals. And free soilers believed that because according to the science of the day, there was no way a black person could outcompete them in uh, a free market. Um, black people would naturally fall to their appropriate status in uh, a free market that these lazier, less intelligent people would be on the bottom. So why would we need discriminatory laws? Nature will do that. Nature will discriminate and keep black people in their place. So you can see how these two constituencies could advance an identical policy agenda based on opposing presumptions. Now, the, the, the third leg of the stool is really the important leg. It's America's business elite, uh, and and it's not and it's not just the business elite. It's the manufacturing business elite. Now, the manufacturing business elite in America were highly dependent on something called the tariff. There's an internal colonialism in America. One of the reasons there is a perpetual Southern grievance against the North is that the North does, it does use the South extractively. Um, that is true. Like the, that, it doesn't make it okay to like, you know, shoot black people. It's like, I'm really mad the North is oppressing us. I guess I got to shoot more black people now. That seems like a weird way to take that understanding, but that's mainly where it's gone. But essentially, um, as the North and South became more antagonistic towards one another in the antebellum period in the 1840s and 1850s, as they became more antagonistic, it was a situation like today. Elites stopped colluding. America is a system that requires a very high level of elite consensus at the top that if you wanna get something done in America, you better keep all of the elites on side. That was the basis of American foreign policy. That's how the voting structure works in their tricameral system. But what starts, but when the elites start hating each other more than they wanna make more money, you get a situation like today or a situation like the 1840s and 50s. And as the Northern elites found the planter elites of the South more and more distasteful, uh, culturally repugnant, as the planter elites became both more paranoid and concurrently more willing to use their power within the Democratic Party to control politics in America, the Northern business elite began to worry that the tariff would die. And the tariff was the basis of the American economy. There was a massive tariff on Southern manufact on, on manufactured goods being imported to the United States. And that's because in um, the American Revolution was about these things called the intolerable acts, these different economic bills that, the, that uh, Britain imposed on its American colonies after 1763. A feature of the intolerable acts was the undoing 
and prevention of further industrialization in the United States. Uh, the British were worried a manufacturing economy was, uh, yeah, uh, a, a manufacturing economy was such a threat to Britain's ability to squeeze money out of its American colonies that um, they uh that uh these acts were brought uh were brought in the united states rebelled and so there was this idea at the beginning of the united states well our manufacturing sector has been deliberately retarded by uh british policy so we have to catch up we have to have our our little great leap forward or our little leap forward and uh spur our manufacturing sector. How can we do that? We'll put a putative tariff on, tariff on European manufactured goods, raising their prices, uh, thereby allowing our goods to compete with theirs as we invest in the sector. Uh, great plan, uh, except what that practically meant is that in the Southern US largely paid for all this. The Southern US report exported raw materials in the form of cotton, it got America's foreign currency through its cotton exports because American manufactured goods were just trying to fill the internal economy. America was really doing the first uh, intentional version of what uh, came to be called in the 20th century, import substitution industrialization. But that meant that American manufactured goods were lower quality and more expensive. And the only reason people would buy them is because of this punitive tariff on English, French, Dutch, and German goods. Well, who paid that punitive tariff and didn't benefit from it were the, the bourgeoisie of the South, the consumers of the South. Uh, none of the industrialization policies affected their region. There was no attempt to industrialize the South. Um, it was, and so the tariff became a transfer of money from South to North to build the economy in one region at the expense of the economy in another. Well, as antagonisms grew in the lead up to the Civil War, the Northern business elites stopped trusting that the Democratic Party would protect the tariff. And without the tariff, there was gonna be big trouble. So Northern business elites moved dramatically into the Republican Party uh, to protect their manufacturing interests and to maintain and amplify this internal situation. Now, the other thing that is going on in America uh, beginning in the 1870s uh, that's also very important for the zeitgeist of this thing we're going to call the open door, once the Republicans take power, they do these big P3s, they create the national rail networks, and what this means is the closing of the frontier. America had been a, an effective land empire that had primarily expanded through demographic uh, forces on the continent of North America. Virgin soil epidemics combined with high levels of migration and high birth rates in the United States produced these population imbalances. And the United States had got good at, um, the United States and Russia in the 19th century 
had very similar ways actually of expanding as, uh, as, as rapidly growing land empires. Um, there are a lot, there are some funny ways that the United States and Russia are on a similar historical track long before the Cold War, long before they come, become protagonists in the geopolitics of the 20th century. Both of these empires had figured out that if you want to expand rapidly, what you, you, you don't exterminate the people you meet at the frontier if they are collectivist agricultural societies. Um, and, uh, oh yes, a word about the Russian rail gauge. Uh, I just, I noticed that, that from the comments. Yes, the, the uh, Russian rail gauge is the American South rail gauge. <laughs> There's only one part of Russia that doesn't have that rail gauge. Um, Sakhalin. Uh, Sakhalin is the Japanese rail gauge for the, including all the parts that were built under Stalin and Khrushchev. Anyway, um, this, uh, so one of the things that you do is you are intelligent about the people you are driving before you. Uh, in the United States, the Cherokee and the Mormons um, play a very similar structural role I think both of them get moved three times, um, but they're moved into new territory in a programmatic and cynical way because um, collectivist agrarian societies break the land and build infrastructure faster than individualistic capitalist societies do. And this is, certain, this is certainly the story of the Canadian West as well with its Dukabors, its Mennonites, its Hutterites, but also the Blackfoot, right? The Blackfoot also uh, became very, very proficient ranchers early on, earlier than adjacent indigenous peoples of the plains. And consequently, it was convenient to relocate them because they would break the land and set things up and then you could move white people in. Um, anyway, these are, but of course, what these things require is the existence of a frontier, is the existence of empty land. Uh, or, you know, empty with the air quotes land uh, that you can uh, push people into. Uh, it, uh, so yeah, well, that's really interesting that you've got a, a bunch of uh, Cherokee in, uh, uh, in Atlanta. That's good to see. They, they were, yeah, the Georgia Cherokee, talk about tenacious. Uh, now, the effect of the closing of the frontier, I want to suggest, and this is just a provocation, this isn't a heavily researched thing I've put together, I want to suggest that the closing of the frontier helps to explain something that I had brought up about Augusto Sandino last episode, um, and that is space, the final frontier. Uh, the... Um, I would argue that America's aspirations to go to the moon begin immediately upon the closing of the frontier. Uh, that um, this idea that America is always expanding, so central to our understanding of capitalism, 
this, uh, this idea that there's always got to be something to expand into. Now, at these moments, Engels is not talking about the moon. Engels is saying, no, they're going to expand the economy into commodifying parts of our minds. And uh, clearly, Engels was uh, a little nearer the mark uh, in, uh, in that idea. But initially, once the frontier closes, it becomes necessary to formalize America's economic doctrine. Because prior to that, the economic doctrine was implied by the operation of the system. That the America's doctrine of economic expansion, you could talk about it in terms of manifest destiny, but mainly you didn't even have to talk about it because you could just watch it happen before your eyes. That these, uh, uh, that these demographic forces were just pushing things across the continent. So it's really in the 1870s, once the Republican Party has consolidated its power, that it develops the doctrine of the open door. Um, and here we can talk, we can now begin talking about the Latin American economies where the United States uh, that the United States expands into without making them into banana republics. That with something like a banana republic, you're looking at very tight political control. Um, you're looking at um, uh, a close relationship between American actors and the military industrial complex, etc. It's in the 1870s that the United States begins competing with Germany and uh, the British Empire uh, in an area where they're, they're about 40 or 50 years ahead. And that, is, uh, and that is in developing more conventional neo-colonial relations in more complex economies like Argentina, uh, where there isn't a single export crop that dominates the economy. Yes, the economy is colonized. Yes, it's producing these raw materials. Yes, there's an effort to inhibit its industrialization, um, but there isn't just a, a particular club of American corporations that run the place. Um, what there is, is an understanding that um, this is a place where the U.S. and other powers can compete with each other in financing the government and financing corporations, buying up land, things like that. And the open door is really only possible after 1848 after liberals and conservatives have come to understand themselves as allies against socialism rather than as mortal enemies. And this is why we see European powers are initially uh, not actively hostile to the United States, um, moving into these economies and getting into the kind of business that they have been in. 
especially because uh, that process is going on in China at the same time. And it's a European-led process there as well, but one in which the United States is participating. But this changes in Latin America first, and the change will, uh, will then hit Japan. America develops a way of, of espousing its ideals of free trade while pushing its European competitors out of newly opening economies. And that is called most favored nation status. Most favored nation is a boilerplate treaty that the United States um, makes with um, another country that on the one hand doesn't raise any trade barriers. It only lowers tariffs. It only opens doors, opens markets. But the snag is that the tariffs, uh, that the, the barriers to American access to your market have to be lower than they are for any other nation. Otherwise, it's just favored nation status. So what most favored nation status does is it creates treaties that are doubly asymmetric. They're asymmetrical first in the sense that the other country's access to America's economy unmediated by the tariff is far less than America's access to that country's economy. But the flip side is that um, America, uh, that um, it's also asymmetrical in that it makes America unequally relevant in that economy. It essentially forces, in some cases, the raising of trade barriers against the European powers. Now, most favored nation status begins, of course, in the United Provinces of Central America because they are the most proximate, the most easily dominated, the smallest, the most vulnerable. And it's there, it's in Nicaragua, uh, that the, uh, just like the military command system that today we associate with the School of the Americas, most favored nation extends outwards from Nicaragua, one of the most savagely dominated of the, um, of the, uh, uh, of, of these uh, uh, countries in the region. Uh, and the most um, reliable testing ground. Uh, I'm going to be talking about coffee soon. And once again, it'll be coffee. It'll be Nicaragua where our coffee story really begins. Again and again, Nicaragua seems unfortunately favored um, with testing out these ideas. But of course, we all know that while 
there's no significant, there's no like noticeable world changing economic benefit to the most favored nation treaty format uh, between the US and Nicaragua when that's taken onto the global stage after the closing of the frontier and it becomes the basis of the Meiji restoration in Japan, we suddenly see that um, America is incredibly effective at making money out of the industrialization of Japan um, uh, because it is unequally benefiting from uh, these transactions in ways that European countries cannot. And it's important to recognize that um, just as the most favored uh, nation treaty is inextricable from the gunboats arriving in Kyoto and Tokyo, uh, this is absolutely true of um, the original most favored nation treaty showing up in Nicaragua. That um, once again, there's this mixture of, um, of uh, this idea of a free and open economy that is just making decisions and just functioning based on a rational profit motive and foreign policy and the exercise of foreign policy through the United States military. Now, the idea of the open door is seductive. Um, it is a very rhetorically powerful idea. It, um, it helps to, uh, it suggests that other, treaty, uh, that, uh, other trade arrangements are somehow underhanded that the complex trade arrangements that allow certain goods in under certain conditions that have different, uh, that have complex tariff structures, these things are a problem. We need something very simple. We just need to knock down these walls, open these doors, right? It's that spirit of, you know, openness and, 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 and flinging open the doors, right, that, that, that's invoked again and again in American political rhetoric up to Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Uh, it's hard to, um, it, it's a hard thing to be skeptical of. And in many ways, I think we've really come back to that problem. Uh, in the 1990s, right, uh, the left was overwhelmingly opposed to this new round of open door treaties, right? That um, uh, treaties like NAFTA, right? Whose, whose first incarnation, right? Appears in 1911. Um, you know, treaties like NAFTA, uh, like the Maastricht Treaty in Europe. And I, in some ways, I, I think I really began to realize just how far off the track we already were when people were not just surprised that I said I would vote leave if I had voted in the EU referendum, but that people couldn't even guess why. That um, uh, there's a fellow running for Vancouver Parks Board right now, a guy named Amir, terrible person. Uh, he uh, is running for a, um, a socialist party, supposedly. But uh, one of the things that he has, um, he's a very misogynistic individual, uh, which is my main problem with him. 
but um, he, uh, I got into a very strange debate with him a few years ago because uh, British Columbia had, you know, enacted the small uh, foreign buyers tax on homes. And the idea of constraining the, the, the and, and the thinking was, and it wasn't just his thinking. I mean, he articulated in especially colorful terms, but the thinking of most of the left was that anything inhibiting the free movement of capital across borders is racist. Um, uh, that, that's become a commonplace view, right? People who question the labor mobility and capital mobility provisions of the European Union are racists. Uh, and... Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it's it. Oh, that's uh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I think Brexit really, yes, it exposed an incoherence that we weren't really ready to confront. We were ready to sort of Americanize that incoherence and go, oh, the Americans have gone crazy. And when in fact, once again, global society wide event, people. Uh, so, uh, so this, um, uh, so the idea of the open door then is a pretty, um, it's a distinctively American one. Other countries will, will adopt it later, but it's actually the main way that the United States distinguishes itself from the European powers at this time. When the United States and European powers are increasingly looking like they resemble each other on the world stage, uh, the ideology of the open door is actually quite important because Europeans generally don't sign sweeping market access tariff dropping treaties. They make very, very sector specific deals in their treaties. And the United States has this is painting with this very, very broad brush. Now, the one disadvantage of um, me doing the lectures in the opposite order that I had meant to was that um, I'm now going to just add an addendum to this lecture that is not directly part of Open Door. It's just a set of events that is important to know as we think about the United States and Latin America. Um, it's not really a Banana Republic thing. It's not really an Open Door thing, but it fits in this um, end of the 19th, early 20th century closing of the frontier moment. One of the big questions um, that Americans are debating in the 1890s is whether the United States should expand into territory with which it is not contiguous other than Alaska. With Alaska, there's always this hope that, that British Columbia and Alberta will just fall into the United States and it'll all work out. Uh, but America up to this point has had a very uh, uh, central policy that it will only let a state into a territory become a state when the territory has a majority white population. So although New Mexico um, has the highest population of any jurisdiction in the American Southwest, from the moment America annexes it, it's the last jurisdiction in the American Southwest to achieve statehood because it's the last one to get a white majority. Uh, Alaska's chief statehood after 
um, it becomes clear that most of the Alaskan Eskimos will not rejoin their indigenous identity groups because they constitute the, uh, the majority of the Alaskan population and would rather just be Alaskans. And so we, we pretend those people are white and so America suffers them to be a white majority jurisdiction. Similarly, Hawaii, because Japanese people do wear top hats. Yes, they lost their whiteness during the Second World War, but they do wear hats. So, um, but that's really it. The U.S. has annexed all kinds of places and has never really considered statehood uh, for any place without a white majority. And it waited uh, 70 years to make New Mexico a state until it got that majority. Now, so there's this question, what would be the status of territory that we acquired outside the United States? If we actually seize something from another power, um, how would we think about it legally? And a lot of that, of course, gets resolved in the Spanish-American War, which I will be talking about next time. And the Spanish-American War, of course, starts on these problems in 1899. But the more interesting story, one that doesn't fit comfortably into the Spanish-American War story, is Panama. Uh, <clears throat> now, the United States had been very concerned well, they had seen the tremendous opportunities and the tremendous dangers of completing a major canal shortcut. The experience of the Suez Canal, the fights between the British, the French, the Ottomans to control that canal, uh, to build it, but then to not just build it, but hold on to it once you built it, this was quite instructive. So one of the first things the United States began uh, doing as it began thinking about the canal project in the 1870s was to sign treaties with both Colombia and Nicaragua. Uh, Colombia was the country that contained the Isthmus of Panama and Nicaragua contained the big lake. You, the, the, th the thinking was the cheapest canal would build a canal, uh, would use a river exiting Lake Nicaragua, you get all the way to the west coast of that lake, and then you just have to cut a canal down to the Pacific. That was going to be by far the cheapest. But the United States, and, you, and this is part of the U.S. obsession with Nicaragua. At the end of the day, however, the Colombian government begins, uh, enters into a partnership with France who had done most of the French engineers had done most of the work designing the Suez and Colombia and France enter into a partnership to build the Panama Canal. Now at the time, uh, Panama was um, a province of Colombia. It uh, was, had the least infrastructure and uh, was um, a backwater within Colombia. It, uh, Colombia, most of Colombia was an area, right, that had been um, part of the Inca Empire and uh, half a dozen and big Andean political units be, uh, before that. It had excellent infrastructure. Um, in fact, uh, in uh, the 1890s, Medellin, Colombia was considered to be the most literate city on the face of the earth the city with the highest literacy rate in the world. 
Now, Colombia was saddled with many of the structural problems that the other big states of Latin America had following uh, the Spanish departure. Uh, and so consequently, its government had, um, had to rely on foreign capital for the building of major new infrastructure. And this included Colombia's railway system. So when the United States became concerned that uh, the Panama Canal project might successfully proceed without it, um, folks from Citibank uh, showed up in Panama City, this bizarre provincial backwater, and offered a giant sack of cash to the mayor if he would declare independence and announce that he was the president of Panama. Uh, so he did. And the Colombian army was immediately dispatched to the Isthmus of Panama uh, to, um, uh, to uh, put down the rebellion. The problem was that the United States uh, corporations owned the rail system. So um, they rerouted the army. They wouldn't send them to Panama. Uh, the government could not command its country's own rail system because US corporations owned it. And so it could only send troops to parts of the country that the United States would permit it to send troops to. And Panama was not one of those places. It is from the protracted uh, delay uh, of these troops, and then of course, efforts to get them there on foot and then eventually capitulation. Uh, and uh, the United States had effectively driven out France. And this is, uh, this is important because again, it shows you where the line gets drawn. Um, that uh, the United States, it, that the United States saw the creation of a physical canal as a moment of overstepping this arbitrary line in the sand that the Monroe Doctrine establishes. That there's this line, you don't know quite where it is, but it's now clear that you're actually modifying the landscape of a Latin American country to achieve a foreign policy objective, uh, that's going to trigger the Monroe Doctrine. Now, of course, back then there's no League of Nations, no United Nations. In 1908, there's no process for recognizing a new country. But you can imagine that counterintuitively, shall we say, Latin American countries were eager to recognize Panama precisely because they were so afraid of what had happened. Uh, that uh, here's a great example of, of the way in which America is effective in magnifying its hard power with soft power. That um, it's clear that Panama concurrently functions as its own thing, as the construction of this canal, and as a cautionary tale, as a piece of pedagogy for other Latin American countries to think about if you take on a really big ambitious project that's going to rebalance global power with a European power, then we'll see this as an abrogation of Monroe. 
So um, uh, the United States open door policy is um, is effective um, for some of uh, the most significant uh, American territorial gains in uh, the late 19th century, but it's not clear what it actually means in terms of American political control. The annexation of Hawaii, for instance, is an interesting case. America did not have the most uh, settlers in Hawaii. It had the third most settlers in Hawaii. Way in the lead is Japan, uh, followed by Germany. Uh, the United States, um, the United States seizure of Hawaii largely had to do with um, they're treating Hawaii as though it was protected by the Monroe Doctrine. The idea that it's a Western hemisphere state, that the US is just there defending. And it's precisely because Hawaii treats the United States as an ally, as this sort of big brother figure, that the United States is then positioned to suddenly annex the kingdom after a military coup that they, of course, themselves had, had provoked. Uh, so Hawaii really is the beginning of asking the question, does opening the door mean American political control over this jurisdiction? Or does it simply mean the kind of domination we would see in a place like Panama or Nicaragua? Uh, and uh, again, it'll take the United States a little while to feel that out. Um, in some ways, right, doctrine is simply uh, developed in response to circumstances. But I think the success of the Perry expedition to Japan, the opening of Japan's economy, the development of most favored nation status, these are things that could not have rolled out in the way that they did without the extensive testing on Nicaragua and the other former members of the United Provinces. So anyway, that's, uh, that's my spiel on, uh, on the open door. Uh, what are people's questions, comments? I guess the only question I have is why Nicaragua? What was so important about it at the time? What made it, I guess, vulnerable? I, I think it was the lake. It was the fact that it would be the cheapest canal route. The fact they didn't go with it, um, I think, I, but some of it is just a coincidence of bad luck. Um, other parts of Central America are like, the best place to grow coffee in Latin America is of course, Brazil. And many other parts of uh, Central America are quite ill-suited for coffee. So I think the other reason Nicaragua attracts undue attention is the beginning of the coffee boom in the 1870s. Um, and this, yeah, and this has to do with uh, a whole bunch of complexities, but um, uh, ironic, I mean, I think, I think Nicaragua getting this bullseye on it. Yes, there's the lake, but the coffee boom, like, that wasn't caused by anything that happened in Latin America. It happened because of a change in European tastes, 
because it was Europeans who went for the coffee primarily, not North Americans initially. Um, North Americans were still having whiskey at breakfast. Uh, like Andrew Jackson, like the Jacksonian porridge is just, you try to imagine this, like you've got this like buckwheat porridge and then you get a big piece of lard and some bacon and then you pour a bunch of bourbon on it and stir it in. Uh, anyway, that's, uh, and the other thing that's happening is that there is this ongoing structural collapse of the Ottoman economy and it's the Ottoman empire that have been the world's coffee supplier. So I think, um, I mean, this, this also, uh, this will profoundly, uh, that profoundly conditions the directions, the strange directions Brazil goes in. Um, their coup in 1889, where the oligarchs topple the monarchy because the monarchy is too democratic. Uh, it's, uh, that's a, a solid um, uh, knock-on effect of, uh, of the coffee boom. But I think once once America has begun has been heavily invested in Nicaragua by the 1880s, um, they do it because they're already doing it. Uh, it's one of the funny things about uh, migration, right? It's like, well, why are there all these Unguni people in Winnipeg? Well, because there were already Unguni people in Winnipeg. So where are you going to move in Canada if you're Unguni? Probably Winnipeg. So, yeah, I think, I think, unfortunately, misfortune attracted misfortune when it came to Nicaragua. Anybody else? Uh, did you look at the link I put in the chat? Oh, let me, let me go out one sec here. All right. Let's it's see not here. super on topic, but it just jogged my memory. Okay, let me take a look at the machine. Oh, Jacksonianism, yes. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jacksonianism is, I mean, it's an interesting combo, right? Because it's, I mean, Jackson never wrote some book of like, this is what Jacksonianism is. Um, you know, at least today, right, there, everybody's ready to write a book codifying random prejudice into ideology. Like I figured out this is a big part of the appeal of Jordan Peterson is that people can pick up a Jordan Peterson book and all it does is repeat um, prejudices they already have just in more dignified terms. And so no one can tell you what they learned from a Jordan Peterson book because everything in a Jordan Peterson book is something that you've heard from some uncle by the time you're eight. And so, uh, uh, but it's got all this language and all this legitimacy around it. Um, I think, I think it, it, it speaks to the authenticity of Jackson. There was no like posthumous Jackson, Jackson apologist. But I think that, I mean, and so much of what Jackson stood for was structurally who he was, not structurally what he believed. Um, the center of Jacksonianism, right, because they abolished the secret ballot. Jacksonianism, in a way, helps to provoke this muscular liberalism of the Republican Party, because Jacksonianism is fundamentally the worship of the crowd. 
Jackson built a machine that could assemble crowds where no one else could put crowds. I uh, go to the frontier and, you know, and they get to the frontier and there'd be the tracts from the American Bible Society, the tracts from the American Tract Society, the Democratic Party propaganda, and these barrels of whiskey. And uh, it was like the revivals from the Great Awakening, but with booze instead of piety. Uh, and there was no fucking social or physical infrastructure on the frontier. Jackson coming to town, that was it. Like Jackson's men coming to town, that was going to be your big gathering with all these strangers who got homesteading grants from the same office you did. Uh, and so Jackson, uh, and so they, Jackson's able to build up these huge majorities. He's, he's able to win an election with secret ballots in 1828, but he still gets rid of them wherever he can. Uh, because there's this sense that um, uh, there's this sense that the popular crowd is America and that we should be more willing to like indulge its violent or its excessive tendencies and that we should legally shield people who mobilize those tendencies Right. Ultimately, Jackson uses a, his private army to try and exterminate the Georgia Cherokee, um, because the point is that Jackson is like the other men ruling the Americas in the 1830s. It, there's no real distinction between where his personal army stops and the government's army starts. The reason he's the government is because that distinction has been lost. And so there's this spontaneity and of course his inauguration is legendary because it features the world's largest cheese ball the largest cheese ball ever assembled uh they built inside the white house and he invited everybody in the world to the inauguration party and like for the next five days washington is just like covered in like passed out people covered in mud vomit running down the streets uh and i there's um and so you can see in the minds uh you, you know you can sort of see the point of these liberal intellectuals going i, I i'm not sure this is what this thing was about I think I think there's got to be something about bridling the crowd, protecting the individual, some kind of duty of care the state might even have. And yeah, of course, those ideas will also go to terrible places. But I don't think you could have, I don't think that muscular liberalism as conceived by the Republican Party in the 1850s would or could have been developed as quickly had the preceding national hegemonic ideology not been Jacksonianism. Uh, other stuff. Okay, well, next time we're gonna do the Spanish-American War. And um, I am gonna get you some readings for that. Um, there's a lovely uh, piece that I will get out to you tonight. Um, it's by Mark Twain. It's called An Open Letter to the Person Sitting in Darkness. And um, it's a classic for good reason. 
Uh, it's a polemic against um, the American occupation of the Philippines. And uh, uh, it's one of those things that I, I think everybody should be reading and showing around these days um, because, you know, we're, we're beset by this myth that uh, like white Americans have only recently realized that certain things are bad. And uh, when you read Mark Twain, um, this could be a letter to the editor by a senior in your local community paper today. Uh, you, you wouldn't have to change anything. Some of the language would indicate it was written by an older person. Um, but that would be the only reason you would think the writer was elderly. There, uh, there's nothing in the piece that um, isn't still very much part of uh, our debates about imperialism and war. So, uh, all right, folks, I'm going to uh, I'm gonna let you guys go and uh, send this thing along and also get some recordings out to uh, you guys because uh, I want Jonathan to catch up. So uh, see you Wednesday. We had an interesting few conversations before class, not directly germane to the content, but um, for those who enjoy the conversations that we have, uh, I've moved these conversations to the end of the class, and for those who would like to keep listening, here they are. I spent most of the year hiding from the year, so uh, I, uh, you know, I just sort of poked my head up and then, uh, you know, gone back down again. So I'm hoping to actually, like, start having a continuous year starting in May now. Anyway, it's uh, it's good to be doing this because it gets me back to uh, the fundamentals of the thought and the economics of it all and the world system stuff. Uh, you know, because I certainly have much more of a sense of why people who become preoccupied by the culture war become preoccupied by the culture war, that there's a much greater sense of interpersonal immediacy around culture war issues that... And it's weird because, right, you should be having a greater sense of immediacy about what cost your bus pass is, right? But um, I think what I'm noticing is that there's, that in a liberal, that in a, I don't know, whatever kind of society this is, there's this way in which um, you create emotional distance on all of these financialized transactions so when transactions happen that don't have a financial dimension to them, they have this weird significance to you because you don't have all this equipment that's like intermediating and emotionally shielding you from the violence. So anyway, those are my crazy thoughts on the subject. Well, I guess it makes sense. I mean, to me, I think people get involved in the culture war because it's something they can actually fucking do. I mean, people know that the people know that their bus pass they should be paying less. People know that the gas costs too much, but there's nothing you can fucking do about it. You can't vote to change it. You can't shoot anybody that would change it. Um, I mean, both sides have tried that and it's come to naught. But you can sure go online and post. You can buy a roll of I did that Joe Brandon stickers and put them on all the pumps in town. That's something you can actually do that leaves a mark in the world that other people can see that makes you feel alive, but there's no other way to engage with politics anymore. There's yeah, that's certainly true. 
Yeah, it's. Um, did you see the uh, the Ben Stiller movie Mystery Men? When was it made? Oh, it's a. It's probably a, a late '90s movie. If I've thought about it, it's probably like. All the movies that are deeply etched in my brain are late '90s. So, um, anyway, if I've seen it. It was like the cut version on TBS. Anyway, it was. Um, anyway, it's a band of absolutely useless superheroes. Uh, ben Stiller is Mister Furious. William H Macy plays the Shoveler, whose superpower <laughs> is that he shovels really well, and. Uh, Anyway, there's a great confrontation they have with the villain. Um, and basically, like, they're just annihilated, but they do manage to scratch up the paint job on his car. And, like, they are so proud of themselves that, like, this guy's car's paint job is slightly damaged. And I thought, like, yes, this is the experience of trying to do politics at our age. It's um, I always think of the Zizek joke about the, the nobleman coming to rape the uh, peasant's wife. And he says to the peasant, hold my balls. So they don't get dusty while I'm doing this. And instead of cutting the guy's balls off, he just lets the balls dangle in the dirt. He says he, he thinks I'm holding them up, but I'm not. That's, that's, <laughs> the same thing. that's all we can do is let let the nobleman's balls get dusted while he's fucking us. Yeah, that um, that's a great. Uh... A great and horrifying image. Uh, oh yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> I I just I I just I love Zizek as a raconteur. Like you take away the crazy style, and it's unclear that Zizek has even said anything that special. But uh, his his delivery is just amazing. Like basically, the the fact that he vaulted onto the international stage by essentially plagiarizing a review of a Mexican movie from the early 90s and presenting it as the review of a movie in the late 90s uh, sort of says it all. And his, like, his best intervention is, um, is of course, the, the Rumsfeld thing, which is, and I think the reason it's so great is you still don't know, and nobody knows. The point is that nobody knows the degree to which Zizek is joking. Like, he doesn't know. Rumsfeld doesn't know. Anyway, how are you doing, Hamish? Oh, pretty good, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm doing good. I had a good day. I had to, I had to send my, my new tractor. They had to come and take it all the way back to Red Deer. It's got a leak in the hydraulic pump, and they have to... Uh, split the tractor in half to uh, to get at the pump. Oh, and, God. But it's covered by warranty. So just as long as they don't take a month to do it. Yeah, that's... Oh, man. So you, you're reasonably close to Red Deer? Oh, hell no. It's an hour and a half drive. That's, that's I bought my, I nep my nephew sells at the dealership there. I, I bought the tractor off of my nephew. I so Bob I, Mills was never your MP then? Uh, no. Okay, good. <laughs> no. Myron Thompson. Oh. <laughs> oh, so you, you wish Bob Mills was your MP. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brutal. Yeah, yeah, I think Red Deer really seems like... I, I had a friend who owned a Buffet World franchise in Red Deer that made a lot of money, but... Uh, the other Red Deer stories I hear, it's like it's a town you want to get into and out of pretty quick. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't. 
there's people who are trying hard there, but I, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to. It's, it's a great place to drive through really fast. <laughs> yeah. And it was like the political birthplace of Stockwell Day. Uh, yep. When, when he was the uh, Pentecostal lay minister there, um, when Jim Keekstra got out of jail uh, for the Holocaust denial teaching he'd been doing as a high school teacher, he moved to Red Deer and became an auto mechanic. And um, Day, Day's first big political intervention was promoting um, Jim Keekstra's auto repair business to his church. Uh, that, uh, oh, yeah. you know, the, uh, the, the liberal media had destroyed this poor Holocaust denier and ruined his career. So it's always struck me as like that part of Alberta being like ground zero for uh, the awfulness of the Canadian right. Well, and it's not too far. It, Rimby is within an hour's drive, which is where, oh, no, no, I'm getting mixed up. Uh, Caroline which used to have a sign saying, this is Kurt Browning country, which is a good thing. He was a good figure skater. But um, Terry, what was his name? He, he hosted, they had clan meetings there. They burnt crosses there. Terry Long? Oh, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, uh, it's it's 541, so I say let's get in there, and uh, Jonathan and Laura will join us as they're able to, but um, here we are. It's the start of May. I'm 50 years old. Um, so this is all quite day. shocking to me. And uh, right, so I, uh, as you'll notice uh, from the syllabus, I originally thought I would do these lectures in the opposite order that I would talk about the Banana Republic's third and Open Door Imperialism second. And it's hard to sort of prioritize which one to talk about first, because in different ways, each one is an elaboration of the other. And in both cases, you need to talk about the changes that are going on inside America in the second half of the 19th century in order to understand the changes in America's understanding of the Western Hemisphere and of the rest of the world. So 